Welcome back to another foray into the world of cannabis. And it's the first podcast of 2019. Okay, so I know it's February, so perhaps this is a little late, but Happy New Year, all of that jazz. Uh, Sorry I'm late. I guess January is pretty much just a month of hibernation, reflection, and being a hermit, right? Despite the slow start, I've got some super interesting guests lined up for you over the next few months. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about cannabis and cancer. We unfortunately all know someone that's been affected by this in one way or another. In the last few decades, since Rick Simpson shared his story of successfully treating his skin cancer with homemade full-spectrum cannabis oil, there's been a huge amount of anecdotal stories of tumours shrinking and then vanishing and patients making miraculous recoveries, often to the shock and bewilderment of their healthcare providers. Despite this, for legal reasons, human clinical trials to explore this have been blocked, perpetuating a completely illogical merry-go-round of cannabis trials being blocked due to its classification as a substance with no medicinal value. Justin Kander is our guest today. He's the patient coordinator for the oil plant, a licensed manufacturer of whole plant cannabis medicines in California. He's been with the company and its associated brand Aunt Zelda's since July 2015. In 2008, he began collecting research and experiences surrounding the use of cannabis to treat cancer and eventually published several books on the subject. Justin has presented at medical cannabis conferences to further share information as widely as possible. I've had a read through uh, Justin's book um, talking about cannabis and cancer. It's well worth a read. I I seriously recommend having a a read through it. Uh, The link for which is in the podcast description. Many across the UK using cannabis to treat particular conditions, yet there's no advice from our healthcare providers on best practice. Furthermore, cannabis affects each of us differently, meaning it can be quite the challenge in working out what strains, cannabinoids and consumption methods work best for each individual. That's why we've created the Grow Street Journal Medical Cannabis and CBD Guide. It's a guided booklet that makes it easy for you to record information about the cannabis products you consume. Track cannabinoid content, dosage, effects, and more easily find out what works best for you. As well as being a useful tracking tool, it also contains a good deal of useful information about cannabis, such as the different cannabinoids, extraction methods, and dosing guides. Best of all, it's totally offline, which means that your data won't be shared with anyone and remains completely personal to you. You can get yourself a journal by visiting our website, www.growstreetjournal.com, and you can use the coupon code PODCAST to redeem 20% off your purchase. That's www.growstreetjournal.com, and you can use the coupon code 
podcast to redeem 20% off your purchase. So where did you start to get involved with all this? Because you know, reading through, you, you've obviously done a lot of research on this. Um, where, where did it start for you? Yeah, it's practically been my whole life when I was uh, 16 years old, about to turn 17. So I'm 27 now. Um, I saw the documentary Run From The Cure, which is the Rick Simpson story, essentially about how he found that using sustained high doses of cannabinoids could achieve terminal cancer remissions in people. Um, So that's what that whole documentary is about, is about that high dosing for cancer and other diseases. And I just, it really resonated with me the first time I saw it at that, at that age, I'm like, wow, this is, I, I just believed it. I'm like, this is, this is working against cancer. And I essentially latched on and began researching it from there. So there were, there were other medical cannabis forums back then, um, like Grass City and, uh, um, Actually, that's the only one I remember, but there were Green Passion was the other one. But essentially, people started seeing that documentary run from the cure and trying to replicate the results. So they were making their own own cannabis extracts high in THC, giving it to themselves, their family and reporting the results. And over the next few years, those stories increased. Other people were were replicating those results with those high doses, sharing them on forums. And they started emerging on um on some news websites and YouTube, and I just was collecting the evidence. So whenever there would be a new story, I would save it in a file and just keep collecting it and sharing it and, and trying to raise awareness of, of this uh, higher level use of cannabis. Um, and things really changed in 2013 when there was the Sanjay Gupta documentary about cannabis um, CBD specifically, high CBD extracts being used to treat epilepsy which was the first uh, mainstream uh, story about a, a higher level healing use of cannabis because before then, you know, it was all about pain um, or, you know, insomnia, anxiety. But with, with the epilepsy, these were very rare forms of, of epileptic seizures that literally no pharmaceuticals whatsoever could reduce slightly. And in many cases, CBD-rich cannabis oil was putting the seizures completely into 100% remission. So... I figured that that would, you know, this is something that would make people more open to the cancer thing because clearly, you know, here's a mainstream use of cannabis having a very profound effect on diseases that no pharmaceuticals worked on. So that would raise the the chances of people seeing that it could work for cancer. So at that point, I wrote a book called The Comprehensive Report on the Cannabis Extract Movement, which integrated the scientific and human evidence of how cannabis helped many different diseases um, with a focus on cancer, and I, I began sharing that at conferences. Um, the first one was the Drug Policy Alliance Reform Conference in 2013, and essentially I just kept going to conferences and share, sharing it informally with other attendees. Um, and then I eventually got invited to speak at a conference in Australia in 2014. So I, I spoke about cannabis and cancer, and then yeah, from there just kept speaking at various conferences and. And writing further books, including that that book that I shared with you, which is specifically on cannabis and cancer. Since that first one I wrote back in 2013 was about how cannabis could help a wide variety of diseases, whereas the cancer one is focused on cancer. And that's that's essentially my focus now. 
Fantastic. That's uh, that's amazing and um, really, really good to hear. Um, and you, you mentioned CBD and uh, and epilepsy. That's that's something that um, has caused a lot of talk, a lot of stir here in the UK, um, particularly last year. There, there was a case um, with with a, a young boy called Billy Caldwell. Um, That's what I was going to say, Delhi. I feel like that I, I remembered him. Yeah, he he was a, a big influence. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it's it's quite well known in the UK um, around the you know the benefits of um, a, a CBD um, kind of strong uh, cannabinoid preparation in in helping with with epilepsy. Um, although I think that yeah, cancer is is something that we've we've still got. A long way to um, to go on, um, and so I mean, it must have been. Was it kind of frustrating or, or challenging for you in in pulling this this book together? Because on the one hand, you know, I don't doubt that you must have been getting a huge amount of uh, anecdotal um, kind of stories about people um, treating their cancer effectively, and um, but on the other hand. Um, is it fair to say that the, in terms of like human clinical trials, um, they're, they're pretty limited if I'm not even sure if, do, do they even exist because of all of the, the legal ramifications that, that still persist with cannabis? Uh, yeah, the clinical data has definitely been sorely lacking and that's been a huge point of frustration. Um, for example, there was one study that was supposed to take place in Israel in 2015 for CBD for solid tumors, and it just never happened. It's like there were all these trials that were supposed to happen, and they just – like everything has taken so much longer than expected. However, thankfully, there is one placebo-controlled trial which does provide strong evidence of an anti-cancer effect in humans. So this was uh, – the re results were released in, in February 2017. It was conducted by GW Pharmaceuticals, and it, it had um, glioblastoma patients, and half of them got THC and CBD combined with the chemotherapy, which was temozolomide, and the other half got only temozolomide and then a placebo. So you know they thought they were getting the cannabinoids, but they weren't. And the people who got the cannabinoids with the chemo lived six months longer than people who got the chemotherapy and the placebo. And that's a very important effect um, Well, for two reasons. One, the dosage that they used was pretty low, only a maximum of 62 milligrams THC and CBD combined, which is a pretty low um, dose when trying to get to those cancer effects. But even that had a six-month extension. And second, with glioblastoma specifically, 70% of patients die within two years. So with most patients dying within two years, a six-month life extension, which is like you know 25% life extension from the max life expectancy, um, is is very impressive. And even the lead investigator said that it was it was likely due to the the potential synergy between the cannabinoids and chemotherapy. Like people don't live six months longer just by, you know, feeling better or thinking that it's helping. It's like that needs to be producing an anti-cancer effect. And that's the only explanation. So there actually is placebo-controlled evidence of cannabis having the anti-cancer effect at a very low dose. So you really do have all the pieces, preclinical, clinical, and massive anecdotal. But we really do need more of that clinical, and especially clinical that will fully show those terminal cancer emissions. But unfortunately, that trial 
just did not use a dose anywhere close enough to be able to achieve that, but still impressive. Mm, yeah, that's that's certainly um, good good progress. Um, you mentioned like a, it was a low dose, you say 62 milligrams of THC and CBD combined. Um, do you know how often they were given that? Was that kind of every day? Uh, yeah, I, I believe the dosing was every day, and, that, and they were working up the dose um, by the individual patient, I believe. So I don't think, I don't even think every, everybody got to 62 milligrams. It was, um, it was by, by the, the patient, um, the individual titration, but it was indeed every day. That's, that's for sure. Okay. And then to compare that to say, um, some of the work that you're, you're, you're doing, um, as a, a licensed manufacturer of, of whole plant cannabis medicine, what sort of um, milligrams are you kind of looking at getting up to um, to, to treat sort of similar uh, diseases and ailments? Well, for most cancers, most people tend to need somewhere between 100 and 300 milligrams of CBD and like 75 to 250 milligrams of THC per day is kind of the general range. But, um, you know, of course, there's and that, that is the most important thing. The, the type of strain comes into play for that synergy and being able to, to be comfortable working up to that and the supporting nutrition and other supplements that people take is important, as is the, the scheduling um, of their doses to try to maximize the effects of the THC and CBD. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of things people can do to try to make the cannabis work better. But the number one most important thing, like people are always like, you know, very hesitant to get started because, you know, they want things to be perfect um, or, yeah, they just don't know the, the you know, the perfect protocol to follow. But the most important thing is just getting up to high doses of THC and CBD in that, that, you know, that high dose range. And if the cancer isn't responding, then generally the doses needs to be increased and there, there may be situations where the strain needs to be changed. But um, overall, it seems that, that increasing the dose is the most important thing. Okay, um, and how do, how do you measure as your um, as as the patient is going along, kind of um, uh, with these dosage, trying to optimize that? And um, what's what's the kind of measure um, to uh, kind of see how effectively it's it's working or if it's not working? Well, in terms of the cancer itself, it's all about those those objective scans, whatever you know, the the scans for the tumor size itself or blood markers. Um, you know, like the CA199 for breast cancer and uh, CA25 and all the, and, you know, PSA. So all those different kinds of cancer markers for the different kinds of cancers, those are the ideal markers to, to measure the anti-cancer progress. Um, and then, you know, symptomatically, that's subjective, um, you know, for dealing with nausea and pain, that just depends on the patient. Although usually getting up to those, those cancer level doses generally tends to take uh, you know, take care of the symptoms because it's the symptoms that are dealt with at the lower doses. So in the process of getting the higher doses, those are often addressed a lot. But usually a lot of people do need some kind of um, like extra source of THC through the smoked or vaporized route for breakthrough symptoms um, of pain or nausea because any other method just takes a lot of time to absorb. And there's there seems to be something inherently therapeutic about smoking or vaporizing for certain subjective conditions. So that will always remain an important motive of delivery um, for that. Although there is is very little direct anti-cancer effect from that, but uh, interesting, yeah, it's, it's mainly symptoms. 
that, that's that's an interesting one. That's something I've I've seen before. I think I've even seen it acknowledged in the um, the extremely conservative um, reports and, and recommendations that we've been through here in the UK with regard to the um, somewhat legalization of, of uh, medical cannabis here. Although no no one seems to be getting access yet, is that they did say um, you know, that, that cannabinoids could be um, uh, beneficial in treating the um, the side effects of chemotherapy and helping to to lessen those those negative side effects. Um, and I, perhaps it's it's too early to say, but in your view, um, going forward, as as we uh, learn more about uh, cannabis and its and its application in treating cancer, um, do you envision that um, chemotherapy and, and cancer will be uh, frequently used together, or do you think that um, potentially cannabis, in in a, in a majority of cases, may be able to actually um, eventually phase out things like chemotherapy? I think it's going to be a long process. I think for the the definitely the next five to fifteen years, probably chemotherapy and radiation and all conventional treatments will be remain a critical part of cancer care, and there's no doubt. Now that combining chemotherapy with cannabis is the safest route, um, many people have had success with cannabis alone, but just because we don't know, there are some people who just won't respond to it no matter what, and because we don't know, there's no way to predict that yet, um, combining them is the wisest course. However, I do deeply believe that at some point in, in our progress, we will move completely, almost completely beyond chemotherapy and radiation and, and pharmaceuticals in general. I think humanity will return to uh, a largely herbal medicine driven and nutrition driven health system. And the, but there, I think there will always be a place for pharmaceuticals, no matter how perfect we get. I mean, the ability to just target specific pathways so, so perfectly with a single compound is definitely very useful, but it's become unbelievably overblown in society. And I think that, you know, 20 to 30 years down the line, it'll be like for two to 3% of, of conditions like pharmaceuticals will be prescribed. But herbal medicine, nutrition, exercise, meditation can truly address the majority of human disease eventually. Awesome. That's... Um... Yeah, I, I really like the way that you you put that. You know, that that's a really balanced outlook. I feel because um, you get you get you know some some fervent supporters of, of cannabis in the industry, and um, talking about things like cancer, it's it's an emotive subject. But yeah, I I totally agree with you um, on on that. It makes total sense. Um, you, you mentioned cbd and and thc and that strains play um a big a big role in that um and i guess there's there's so many different factors at play so the cbd to thc ratio for example um and then the fact that i mean there's there's so many other cannabinoids in in the plant um how how are you um tracking or you know, optimizing um the best the best kind of strains, the best ratios. Um, is there kind of a methodology that you use for this? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a relatively simple uh, um, heuristic that we use right now. But in general, if a cancer seems to be driven by the ID1 gene, which is a gene that's responsible for the progression 
and uh, metastasis of many cancers. CBD has been shown to be extremely effective at blocking that gene. So if that gene is most likely to be present, then um, using more CBD than THC is often called for, where if that gene isn't present, then using more THC than CBD is called for. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, there needs to be tons more research into the specific doses and um, other other attributes of cancer that predicted the ID1 is certainly just one of many. But right now, that seems to have been a pretty good indicator um, of, of if, if a high CBD approach is going to have some effect. Um, and then in terms of strain, that's that's where there needs to be even more research beyond um, the cannabinoids because there's so many different kinds of, of terpene combinations that can exist, and we don't know which combinations are effective against which cancers most effectively. So right now, the most important thing is finding strains that have a wide variety of terpenes, really as many as as possible um, for that general synergy, and then also that it's, it's a combination that makes the patient feel comfortable so that they're working up to high doses and it, it's something they can tolerate. So many people, for example, many have recommended indica-type um, strains for treating cancer. Um, and specifically that's because those tend to be higher in those sedative terpenes like myrcene and linalool that when you get to really high doses of THC, it's helping you fall asleep. Whereas if it's a, a like a sativa that has really high levels of pinene or beta caryophylline, then it's going to be more stimulating. It's going to be hard to get up to those higher doses comfortably because it's going to make your mind race and maybe cause you know, paranoia and side effects. So, um, yeah, that's just the most, you know, get finding a strain that that's comfortable to get up to, which for most people is, is more sedative and, um, you know, see, trying to see a, a wide spectrum of terpenes. Interesting. And you mentioned like a, yeah, an indica and a, a and sativa kind of strains. And I, I've heard like varying, uh, viewpoints on this kind of this kind of categorization categorization process um you know there's 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 some that say that like most most strains are kind of hybrids these days or they've they've been crossbred over um so many times that there's there's characteristics of both but it, it seems like from you know you, you you kind of drilled into that a little bit further and said well you know the sativa has these characteristics um, in terms of its its terpene breakdown, and indica has has these other ones. So, what what's your viewpoint on that as um, as characteristic or, or um, ways of attributing different strains? Um, do you think sativa and indica that that they're kind of um, valid to use, or should we be looking at kind of other classifications as our as our understanding? Um, yeah, to I think there are there are definitely better classifications. Like right now, I mean, I kind of go with like whatever the popular terminology is. Like right now, I mean, I've heard like the the death of indica and sativa has been like greatly exaggerated. Like because I've heard that like five years ago we're moving away from it, yet it's still everywhere. So I kind of just use it as a stand-in um, for sativa generally meaning a more stimulating strain and indica meaning a more sedating strain. But indeed, it's, it's, I mean, people just need to look at the lab results. Like if something's called sativa and it has no stimulating terpenes and only sedative terpenes, then it's more indica type. So really people should be looking at the lab results and making judgments from that rather than sativa indica. Um, and there's other 
other typings that will I think will come into play and replace it. Like I believe Ethan Russo developed a system of like type one, type two, and type three for like high THC, balanced THC and CBD and high CBD. Um, and then I don't know what the typing for the terpenes is, but I think they're working on that too. But eventually, strains should be just described by those types, describing the uh, or alluding to the cannabinoid and terpene profiles rather than just indica sativa, because that, yeah, that doesn't reflect anything about the cannabinoids, um, and it only loosely implies what the terpenes are. So we'll definitely be moving away from that, but for now it's still pretty, you know, uh, prevalent, just like strain, which I, you know, is technically like not the proper term for different cultivars, but it just is the, is, you know, the, the colloquial term and language is always evolving and changing and it, it, there's really is like no I mean well scientifically there's proper ways but colloquially it really is what what society decides so I don't I don't think it's it's too bad that they're still being used but uh, I mean you know eventually we'll just move to terminology that better describes things mm, yeah well, it's, it's interesting to see how that will that will evolve um, and you you mentioned terpenes which which is interesting uh, it's a yeah, it's a it's a term I'm I'm hearing more and more of, and um, previously my my understanding of terpenes was um, predominantly through you know one of a, a recreational user of of kind of smell and of taste they're the, the kind of defining characteristics in that. But to what extent do, do terpenes have um, therapeutic property as well? Well, scientifically, they've been shown to have almost all of the same medical benefits as the cannabinoids. I mean, I can't really think of, of certain benefits that haven't been shown in terpenes that have been shown in cannabinoids. Um, you know, anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, analgesic, neuroprotective, anti-diabetic, um, you know, anti-cholesterol. I mean, it's it really is because well, there's so many terpenes, like not all of them have, have those properties but between all of them it's, it's basically a reflection of what the cannabinoids do so the overall theory is that by combining those terpenes with the cannabinoids they're working together to amplify the effects of each other um to work better and, and the, really just the evidence for that is the people who've had experiences with those isolates like marinol which is a, a fda approved thc isolate in america um, most people say they don't like it. It doesn't have the uh, same benefits as whole plant cannabis, and it's too psychoactive. So the terpenes just just help modulate the cannabinoids and, and bring down some of the potential negative uh, effects while magnifying the positive ones. Hmm, fascinating. Okay. Um, so let's get back onto onto canceling. So I'm really keen to to kind of explore this this with you. Um, and in, in, in your your book, um, you mention you mention phytocannabinoids. Um, so, I, I, now correct me, please, if I'm if I'm wrong here, because uh, you know I'm I'm aware my knowledge on this is is pretty limited. The phytocannabinoids are they are they basically the, the cannabinoids that are present naturally within the within the cannabis plant? Exactly. Yeah, just phytocannabinoids are the cannabinoids in the plant, and endocannabinoids are the ones our bodies make. Okay. All right. So, is so is is THC like is that a, a phytocannabinoid or is that just a, a cannabinoid? Because I guess you've got to you've got to heat it up to to activate it, right? 
Well, the heat, well, it's, uh, well, there's the raw phytocannabinoids and the decarboxylated phytocannabinoids, but they're anything produced by the plant is a phytocannabinoid. So THC, CBD, CBC, CBG, all of the, any cannabinoid that's produced in a plant is, is a phytocannabinoid. So in regards to the heating, specifically all the phytocannabinoids are produced in their acidic form. So cannabis, the cannabis plant doesn't make THC or CBD, it makes THCA and CBDA, and it's only when it's heated that it converts. Um, so the, they're, they're all phytocannabinoids, and, and yeah, technically the plant only produces the raw phytocannabinoids, but the, yeah, the, the heated versions, the THC and CBD, just get a lot more attention than those uh, natural, you know, the natural raw form. Sure. Um, and how, how important is that? That transition. I mean, obviously, the you know, if you if you're looking to get high or whatever, then then it's pretty important because it you know it, it gives it that psychoactivity. I believe, like if you eat the raw plant, it's not gonna it's not gonna get you stoned, for example. But I've I've heard um, anecdotally a lot about the um, the huge kind of benefits um, and potential of uh, juicing cannabis. So sticking the raw plants into like a smoothie, for example. Now, is is that um, is that relevant or within the scope of of um, what you've been looking at with cannabinoids treating um, cancer? I think that there's very huge promise to juicing in the raw cannabinoids, and there's been limited reports of anti-cancer effects with those. But the the reality is, is there's been so much less experience with it. The vast majority of people have used. Uh, you know, the decarboxylated extracts to achieve their anti-cancer effects. And the vast majority of the research has been conducted on the uh, decarboxylated cannabinoids. So although there's a lot of promise, they're just, just unfortunately, scientifically or anecdotally, just a lot less evidence. Um, and also, like the, the big difference between THC and THCA, as you alluded, is that is THC causes the psychoactivity because that's what activates the cannabinoid receptors. The THCA molecule does not fit into the CB1 or CB2 receptors that the way that THC does. So THC directly activates them, and that activation is a is the primary way that THC kills cancer cells and inhibits them. So THCA is not doing that. So um, it's missing out on on those effects. However, there may be other pathways that THCA works through where it's possible that getting up to really high doses has some kind of effect on the cannabinoid receptors, um, either directly or or like a, a side allosteric modulation of some kind, potentially. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to discover more about how it interacts with the endocannabinoid system and fights cancer. And I'm, I'm super excited, but there's just just not too much right now mm, yeah i'm really eager to see that as well um and i yeah i i do wonder if it's something we can try and make headway with is you know in the uk where, where laws are still rather draconian it seems like a, a potential interesting avenue because it's you know it, because it is non-psychoactive and i i wonder if there's any loopholes we can try and exploit but um yeah we we have a, a rather backwards government at the moment so so perhaps not um so i guess the million dollar question um based based on our understanding so far can you talk me through how cannabis uh treats cancer 
So there's, there's four primary ways that it, it fights cancer. One, the most potent way is that it binds to receptors on cancer cells, either CBD or THC. Um, the types of receptors it binds to varies, but there's a, you know, there's a variety of receptors that it attaches to and then triggers effects that lead to the programmed cell death of that cell. So it, it basically cancer is the, the cells forget how to commit that programmed suicide and they just start re, re, reproducing uncontrollably and the cannabinoids restore that, that programmed cell death. So they activate the receptors and the cancer cells just break down neatly and, and get self-digested essentially. So that's the most impo- important thing. Um, and then there are several other effects. There's also reducing the proliferation so it just stops them from reproducing as quickly. It also, when it comes to solid tumors, a critical stage in the growth of solid tumors is they form their own blood vessels to to bring them blood and nutrients to grow and cannabinoids stop the formation of those blood vessels. So that stunts the growth of primary tumors. And then also critically, um, they inhibit the metastasis of cancer cells. And that's of course, what makes cancer really deadly is when it spreads to those other organs and uh, THC and especially CBD seem really good at stopping that metastasis. So it's, it's having a comprehensive effect on cancer, at directly killing the cells, slowing them down from reproducing, stopping the growth, growth of blood vessels, and stopping their spread. Well, that, that sounds like, you know, incredibly powerful. Um, and how would you compare that with, with something like chemotherapy, which I suppose seems like a little bit more of a, a blunt tool, is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. And there's a couple things that separate it. One, the the main way that chemotherapy kills cancer cells is by something called necrosis. And necrosis is when the cell actually explodes and the the, in, the intracellular contents kind of spill out and can cause inflammation. And that's probably, you know, or, or that relates to some of the side effects and the sickness of chemotherapy. So the way that the cannabinoids kill cancer cells through apoptosis rather than necrosis that apoptosis is the program cell death where it, it's breaking down, you know, by genetic instructions to, to be able to be recycled and not damage surrounding cells. So it's a way better way for cells to die. Um, and furthermore, chemotherapy notoriously does not do well between discriminating against healthy cells and cancer cells, which is why there's so much nausea and hair loss because the gut and hair cells are, are stuff that reproduces especially quickly. So it's also targeting things, other cells that are reproducing quickly. And cannabinoids are very selective in that they only target those cancerous cells. Um, so, yeah, a really big advantage there over conventional treatments. But it does seem like the, the one trade-off is it, is it lacks some of that power. Like chemotherapeutic agents, milligram for milligram, are usually more potent against cancer than the cannabinoids. Um, but the great thing is, you know, you can make up for that by just taking larger doses of cannabinoids, whereas with chemotherapy, the dose is limited because it'll, it'll you know, cause death if the, the dose is too high, where there, there isn't that limit with cannabis. Wow. Okay. Um, and I think critical to, to all of this um, is, is the endocannabinoid system, um, which is a, a topic that... Um, something I, I've struggled to understand for a while or I kind of struggled to get my my head around it a little bit 
Um, and I, I asked Ethan Rosso this on the podcast. I'm going to ask it to you as well, because I just think it's, it's a really useful topic to be able to, um, to talk to people about. Um, but yeah, how, how would you describe what the endocannabinoid system is? For, to a dummy like myself. <laughs> so first, you know, we all we have all kinds of systems. We have the nervous system, we have the circulatory system, we have the digestive system, and so it just is another system like that. Um, so you know, the digestive system, you know, the main component I guess you know is the stomach and the uh, the intestines, I suppose. Um, so the the endocannabinoid system has has three three parts. Like this is the system. You have the receptors. So those are the CB1 and CB2 receptors. Those are those, those you know, proteins that protrude out of cells all throughout the body, and they're they're message receivers. So cannabinoids lock to those receptors, just as you know the serotonin receptor in the brain. That that is the 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 receptor for messages from the serotonin molecule, and that you know makes you feel good and has all kinds of regulatory activities. It's the same with the cannabinoid receptors. Um, so they're there to receive messages for cells, and the endocannabinoids are, are what lock to those receptors. So that's the second component. First, you have the receptors, and then you have the endogenous cannabinoids, which our, our bodies make. Um, so and actually, a better example is, is opioids. So we have endorphins, which is endogenous morphine, the, the opioids that our bodies produce that naturally connect to our opioid receptors. Um, or you could take morphine and, you know, the, the, the drug form of opiate, and that'll bind to the receptors. Um, same with the cannabinoid receptors. It's either activated by our endocannabinoids that our bodies make or the plant cannabinoids like THC that we ingest. Um, and then there's the third component is just those enzymes that make and degrade the endocannabinoids. So when, like, for example, when you're feeling really stressed, the body can be triggered to, to produce the enzymes that make anandamide, and then anandamide will get released and activate the receptors and kind of calm you down. Um, so, and, and the purpose of all those receptors, the, the widespread purpose is homeostasis or balance. So that stressful situation is a, is a, a great example of that balance. You know, you're, you're feeling stressed, you're not balanced, the endocannabinoid system kicks in and produces those endocannabinoids to make you feel balanced. Same with, with, with energy, you know, or hunger. When you start to feel hungry, part of that is endocannabinoids being produced to give you that feeling of hunger, make you eat, and then restore balance to the system by making sure that it has enough energy. So there's all kinds of different manifestations of this homeostasis, whether it's neurotransmitter levels, hormone levels, um, yeah, your mental state, cancer cells in the body, um, inflammation, the, these endocannabinoids are controlling many things throughout the body just to make sure that it's balanced and, and also acting as a communication system between the other systems um, so that, so yeah, so they can communicate and stay in balance. So that's, that's really the overall role of the endocannabinoid system as, as the research currently suggests is just this, this super regulatory system that controls the others and make sure that there's overall balance in the body. And that's why cannabinoids are, are sure, you know, the theory is that that's why cannabinoids benefit so many different things because any disease is essentially the body being thrown out of balance and cannabinoids are helping bring it back to balance. Um, yeah, that's a, a, a fair overview. Happy to clarify any further.
I think that was that was a great overview. Thank you. Um, I, and when you when you put it like that, for me, you know, it's 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 all the more scary that this plant has um, yeah has been illegal for many many decades. Like that, some something that has such a profound effect um, on on our systems and on our ability to to regulate as normal. It's yeah, it's it's pretty scary that that's um, that we've been denied access to that for so long. Yeah, it's literally the medicine that arguably is the most agreeable for the human body that happens to be one of the only plants that's banned. It's pretty wild. <laughs> oh, good humans, eh? Um, you mentioned endogenous cannabinoids. So does our, our body produce its own version of cannabinoids? Exactly, and that's the, the yeah. That's a very key thing. So the the our body produces primary two primary endocannabinoids, which are anandamide and two AG. Those are the two main endocannabinoids our bodies produce, and those are are released um you know from cells to activate the receptors and produce those regulatory effects. And and there it was actually hard to find. So the the endocannabinoid system wasn't discovered until the like the early 1990s and that's because these endocannabinoids are very short-lived unlike other other you know like neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine they, they're kind of longer lived molecules and they're easy to find and measure but the, the endocannabinoids they're produced on demand so like when you're real feeling really stressed they'll be produced they'll calm you down and then they'll instantly get metabolized and disappear so they were really hard to find um but then when they were, you know, we started discovering all, all the important things that they were used for. Um, but so they so THC is an exogenous cannabinoid from outside the body. Also, so exogenous cannabinoid or phytocannabinoid um, are kind of interchangeable, um, although exogenous can also refer to synthetic cannabinoids. But essentially, um, yeah, the, the THC produced by the plant, when you take that, it activates those CB1 and CB2 receptors in the body in the same way that anandamide does. So a lot of the benefits of cannabinoid receptor activation as delivered by anandamide naturally can be amplified through THC. So that anti-anxiety effect of anandamide, you know, you can you can exercise and get some anandamide and, and it'll help with stress or you can take some THC and that will activate those receptors and help with stress. It's definitely good to, to try to do both. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just tapping into that system that we have. Um, cool. So, so if we, if we're producing these, these cannabinoids in our body, like, um, why, or hmm, what am I trying to say here? Is there the potential for them to help treat the cancer as well uh, like you know why why do we get cancer if if we have the ability to to produce these cannabinoids in our body well there's a couple of theories one is that some cancers may be the result of an endocannabinoid deficiency where if we did have enough endocannabinoids then the cancer would be adequately controlled but because of of um, you know toxins in, in the environment or stressors, anything that impairs the endocannabinoid system's function, it may lose its ability to control those cancer cells and then it gets out of control. And then you need those, those extra cannabinoids to tap in for what the endocannabinoid system couldn't do itself. Um, there's no doubt that that's not the case with every cancer or even the majority of cancers, but it's certainly possible that um, 
that endocannabinoid dysfunction is is the cause of certain cancers, and those are the ones that would most that would you know most potently respond to to cannabinoids, whereas ones that are caused by other other things, you know, like like radiation cancer, like that may be less responsive because it's not due to a, a endocannabinoid deficiency. Um, cool, makes sense, um, and I think. One one last thing I wanted to ask you. You, you mentioned earlier um, that, that the cannabis doesn't doesn't seem to work for some people, or it doesn't um, work as effectively. Um, why why do you think that is? I uh, I just don't know. I mean, they well there. I mean, there's there's one case where it's very clear cut. Like there's uh, brainstem tumors like uh, DIPG. Um, and in those cases, like the when the brainstem, like the, the reason that cannabis can't kill you is because there's no cannabinoid receptors on the brainstem. Um, that's why opiates kill you because it's it activates those receptors on the brainstem and it slows down breathing. But because there aren't cannabinoid receptors there, if a cancer originates in that area, there doesn't have the receptors to to be activated by the cannabinoids that lead to the the apoptotic and other anti-cancer effects. So in other parts of the body, if a tumor just happens to have, you know, low expression or, or no expression of the cannabinoid receptors, then theoretically the cannabinoids would work a lot less, would work a lot less effectively or not at all. Um, thankfully, there are other receptors besides the cannabinoid receptors that cannabinoids kill cancer cells through. So if the cannabinoid receptors aren't present, there may be other targets, but those definitely those seem to be the most effective targets um, and the most well characterized. So yeah, if, if those receptors aren't there, then most likely it's not going to work as well. And there 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 may be other other reasons besides the mere presence or absence of cannabinoid receptors that influence the efficacy. Um, but yeah, we're this is still such an early stage, and we still have so much to learn. And like that's it's like yeah, fi finding what makes people respond and what makes people not respond learning how to overcome resistances and, and yeah, matching, you know, those cannabinoid chirping profiles to specific cancers. We got a long ways to go, but just, you know, getting to those high doses can, can work for a lot of people, thankfully for now. Mm, well, yeah, what an exciting time to, to, to be alive that, that we're actually getting the chance to, to start exploring all of this, this finally, you know, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And it's, and it's fascinating. Oh, it's extremely exciting. It is. And when things really blow up, like there will come a time when the use of cannabis to treat cancer is going to be absolutely dominating global discussion. And obviously we're not there yet, but like once the world truly accepts that in some cases it can put terminal cancers into remission, when that's truly understood by the world, it's going to trigger a revolution. And there's, there's no way to predict how that's going to go down, but hopefully it leads to just, you know, people having the medicine they need for any condition they have because it is a truly miraculous medicine and, and humanity needs it. Spot on. Well, it's been very, very informative. Um, I've, I've learned a lot and I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. So, uh, yeah, a huge, huge thank you to you, Justin. Really appreciate your time and, and coming on today to, to talk about um, all of this, this work and knowledge that you've accumulated. Thank you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to be able to share this knowledge. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's been a long road, but I, I we're really coming to to the point where it's going to get big. Things have, have changed more than uh, anyone could have predicted in in you know the past ten years. So the next the next few are going to be wild.
All right. Well, we're going to have to catch up again then soon and uh, keep track of your progress here. Excellent. Yeah, happy to keep you updated. And anyone is free to get my book at freecannabiscancerbook.com, completely free. And you can see the uh, you know dozens of studies and over a hundred human cases of it fighting cancer. And yeah, there's you know anybody who has any doubt, you just read through that and the doubt will melt away. I'm going to link that in the podcast episode as well. And uh, yeah, I, I second that. It's it's well worth a read. Um, I think you know every literally everyone should read it. Everyone should read that that book because it's um, yeah, it really does put things into into focus and uh, and you've collated a, a whole lot of information there um around around cancer which is a a topic that you know a lot of people don't don't know much about still so uh yes thank you very much for doing that of course yeah and i'll uh, keep updating it until until it's acknowledged that it works so it's in the fifth edition now and hopefully i won't need to make too many more editions until it starts to change that's awesome good on you buddy Thank you very much, and uh, I'll, speak, I'll speak to you soon. Sounds good. It was awesome uh, speaking with you, and yeah, thanks again. Happy to help further however, however needed.